FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. It's the end of yet another week on our show, and I'm very glad, as always, to have all of you with us. Um, And I need to point out right away at the top of the show that um, you can not only listen to us today, you can watch us. Uh, If you uh, come to the GPB website, uh, gpb.org, you'll see a button at the top of the page that'll allow you to watch the video of the show there. You can also watch us on Facebook Live at the GPB News uh, Facebook page. And we're really pleased to be able to have a video version of the show available to all of you. We're trying it out today. We'll see how it goes in the uh, weeks ahead. But Fridays, uh, our effort's going to be to do the show on video. Um, let's get right to the panel. Lots to talk about uh, again today. Patricia Murphy is with us, my AJC partner on the Friday show. You know her as the um, political reporter and political columnist uh, for the AJC. She writes the political insider column on Wednesdays and Sundays in the paper, oversees the jolt at AJC.com. Hi, Patricia. And as I introduce you, let me say your, your Sunday column is already up online. We'll post a link to it. It's a really, really interesting interview with Senator Raphael Warnock, who's obviously been at the center of a lot of the debate over voting rights. So, but welcome to the show. Thank you, Bill. It's great to be here. Um, I want to ask you a little bit later about uh, some of the things that Raphael Warnock uh, had to say to you. Also, you wrote an interesting column this week on what just what do we mean when we talk about suburban women? I hope we'll find time to get to that as well. Uh, we're joined also by Professor Andrew Gillespie, Professor of Political Science and the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University. Andra, how did this next fine another week of school go for you this week? Um, it was busy. I'm not actually teaching, but it's still busy. Oh, 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 that's right. You're you're uh, working on other projects this semester, aren't you? Trying to finish up some other stuff. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, thank you for being here uh, today. And the uh, CEO, the boss of Bundo Hispanico Digital, <laughs> Renee Alegria, joins us as well uh, today. How you doing, Renee? Very good, Bill. Thank you for having me. And it's uh, boss hog to others, but I'll just go with (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you for that clarification, Renee. Uh, Let's get right to the news. Um, Patricia, Fannie Willis has, I think, either herself uh, uh, directly or others around her have hinted at the fact that she has been looking at whether to impanel a special grand jury to continue her investigation into potentially criminal wrongdoing by Donald Trump in his attempts to change the outcome of the presidential election in 2020. Now she has gone to the chief judge of the Fulton County Superior Court and asked that he give her um, approval to go ahead and impanel that grand jury. Why is that significant, Patricia? It's significant because uh, there are two types of grand juries. A special grand jury, which is something that Fannie Willis is requesting here, is something that is a longer term situation. It's a jury that can be impaneled to focus on a single case. And typically that's a case that involves a lot of witnesses and a lot of documents. And so this tells us that she is starting to acquire a good bit of evidence for a jury to review for a possible indictment. Um, It doesn't mean that there will be an indictment, but it does mean that she thinks that she has enough to go forward and it's enough that it shouldn't be just um, any group of jurors who happen to be impaneled for a set period of time and they can be overturned and re-educated every time you have a new grand jury. She has a specific one that she wants. Um, Also in the letter to the judge, she said that she has substantial um, information and evidence that points to possible wrongdoing. And so um, she did indicate that uh, 
of the information that she has, it's leading her in a particular direction and possibly toward President Trump. Yeah, Andra, I noted the same thing in uh, Fonnie Willis's uh, in the story that that the AJC published on Fonnie Willis, the same uh, sentence that Patricia just did. Here's the direct quote. Uh, She said to the chief judge in making a request that the DA's office, quote, has um, received information indicating a reasonable probability that the state of Georgia's administration of elections in 2020, including the state's election of the president of the United States, was subject to possible criminal disruptions, Andra. Well, um, so it's not just President Trump. There are other people um, that, uh, that we expect this grand jury is going to look at, particularly Rudy Giuliani and his interference um, in the race. The other thing I think it's really important about this special grand jury is its subpoena power. So we've seen on the national level with the January 6th committee that there are people who don't want to cooperate. Uh, by having a subpoena that sort of legally requires folks uh, to provide information that's being requested, this is a way for Willis to gain leverage over some witnesses who might be uh, reluctant or even recalcitrant. Yeah, um, that's absolutely right. I mean, we might see Rudy Giuliani's uh, activities brought to play here, and uh, that'll be interesting to watch. There are others who she could be looking into. We don't know exactly who they might be at this point. At least I don't. Um, Renee, uh, let me get you to weigh in on this. Um, But at the same time, let me point out that we know that getting criminal charges of election interference uh, is going to be tricky because it requires, I believe, if if, if she does eventually charge Donald Trump, it, it will be because she will have evidence that he knowingly broke the law in trying to overturn the election. Renee, are you there? I think maybe we've uh, got to a problem with Renee. Do you hear me? I, I I just heard you. Yeah, there was a, it was a little garbled there, but I think I got the gist. Um, look, Trump is having a bad week. You know, I, I think so. So so many folks are out there saying that, you know, Biden is having a rough go of it. But things seem to be crashing down around Trump. Uh, grand jury after grand jury. I think what what struck me about reading what uh, Willis uh has reported was was really the uh, getting to hear the audio tape of Trump's call uh, to Raffensperger all over again and reliving just how immediate and alarming that call really was. And I think the more that tape is played going forward, the more well, I mean, let's face it, the court of public opinion uh, in so many circles are going to continue to crush uh, Trump. And, and we'll see how that affects everyone around him. But again, everyone's playing that tape all over again. And if I were Trump or anyone on his team, I just wish that tape would go away. Yeah. Um, Patricia, uh, we do know that there are those who believe that Fonnie Willis, because of the pandemic, has a huge backlog of cases Uh, that are well within her jurisdiction, that she has to process, clear, do something with. And there are those who have said, don't do this. We don't need you to turn attention to a criminal investigation of the president of the United States. She, though, believes that if there was criminal wrongdoing here, he should not be exempt from being investigated thoroughly and potentially prosecuted, Patricia. Yeah, I've spoken with her about this very question and the um, the thought from Republicans, uh, doesn't Fulton County have enough on it without jumping into this situation, which um, could be potentially explosive, uh, certainly from a media standpoint, um, and certainly from the weight of uh, investigating a former president. Um, but she has said that if somebody commits a crime in her jurisdiction, um, it doesn't matter if they're uh, somebody who is uh, living on the streets. It doesn't matter if it's somebody who used to live in the White House, that person um, should be held accountable. And so that's what she said this is about. She can't, she said she 
won't look the other way, uh, no matter who could be committing a crime. Um, something that I think will be really important to watch for, when she was asking for more resources from the Fulton County Commission, she was saying that she needed more prosecutors and more investigators. Um, and this had to do with murder charges, mm -hmm. by the way, but this is her approach to, um, to prosecuting. She's a very meticulous prosecutor, and she told me um, she didn't want, she didn't feel like she was in a position to bring charges against a number of people who um, uh, had been accused of a crime because she didn't have the evidence, she didn't have the investigation, she didn't have the full fledged sort of support of the prosecutors that she needed. And she wouldn't bring charges against people who she didn't think she had an excellent chance of convicting. And so I think that's an important mindset to go forward as we watch how Fonnie Willis uh, continues with this case as well. Uh, Andra, before we move on to another topic, um, what are the hazards of Fonnie Willis asking for the special grand jury, impaneling it, watching it begin to do its work in the middle of a, a very important election year? You know, there's always the risk of politicization. Um, and there, frankly, is the risk of failure. Um, and so if nothing comes of this grand jury, then some people will say that she wasted time and resources on this particular effort. Um, I think we also need to think about what the greater good of this is. Uh, we've watched this get politicized at the national level to the point that things haven't happened yet. So, you know, this was something for which, especially when we add January 6th into it, Donald Trump should have been impeached and precluded from running for office again. But the elected politicians did not take their responsibility seriously enough. We couldn't get two thirds of the Senate to go along with the vote for them to do what they were supposed to do. So somebody has to do it. So I think in some way this is federalism working to kind of deal with things at the state level or at the local level that the national level might not be equipped to do for politics sake. But that's going to be really fraught in the moment. And she's going to catch a lot of heat for this for the reasons that you and Patricia have talked about already and for others uh, that we can imagine are likely to happen. On the other hand, like, let's not let our lying eyes fool us. We saw what we saw. We heard what we heard. Donald Trump is an adult. He was leader of the free world. He wasn't that stupid. And so we shouldn't sort of act like, oh, he didn't know what he was doing when he specifically asked for 11,780 votes to the number to get him over. Um, you know, it's interesting, Renee. You're the one who mentioned that this has been an, an especially bad week for Donald Trump. It really has been. The Fonnie Willis news comes at the end of a week in which uh, we also know uh, the United States Supreme Court rejected his appeal that the papers that the uh, January 6th committee wants to look at uh, should be protected uh, by executive privilege. Supreme Court said nonsense. Uh, they can be turned over, and those some of those pages are already in the committee's hands. Um, and, of course, at the same time, uh, New York investigators have now indicated they have a lot of evidence that uh, Donald Trump in his business dealings inflated the value of his holdings. Uh, and uh, although that's a civil investigation, it, it, there's also a parallel criminal investigation going on there. And whatever they're holding that shows this inflation of assets could uh, accrue to the criminal investigation as well. So this is not Donald Trump's best week. No, it, it, it really isn't. I mean, the, the, the wagons are circling, right, in, in all areas of his life, um, politically, uh, business, of course, and, and even his family. I mean, there was uh, news of Ivanka being asked to cooperate with the January 6th uh, committee. Uh, whether she's going to or not, who knows, but just the fact that his daughter is now looped in uh, doesn't portend good things for, for the former president. So, Patricia, I want to bring all this back to Georgia, but, but let me do it in a slightly roundabout way. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me this moment, but there was an NBC poll this week that asked Republicans, are you loyal to the Republican Party or to Donald Trump? Where do you give your allegiance? And the poll showed by a pretty overwhelming margin that people said it was to the Republican Party. Donald Trump was only in the 30s in terms of uh, approval, not necessarily approval, but being the person who they believe is the center of the Republican Party. Now, we know how many Republicans in Georgia are running on the basis of their allegiance to Donald Trump. 
Is any there any reason, given the activities this week, given this poll, which is only one poll, is going to give anybody pause to think about whether Trump is going to be a liability? Uh, I don't, not yet. You know, not yet. I think the people who are in with Trump are in with Trump. And the people who are acting like they're in with Trump are acting that way until there's good evidence that they should not act that way. And so I think we would need to see a lot of durable polling uh, showing that as a real trend. And then also people, um, elected leaders are going to start to need to hear from their own voters and their own constituents, their own county level Republican leaders. Hey, listen, Donald Trump has taken it one step too far. Um, I mean, Donald Trump Trump has already taken it many steps too far. Um, however, that hasn't changed the mind of many Georgia voters, especially Georgia Republican voters. And so we'll have to see. I mean, I think that this is not, uh, obviously, it's not been a great week for the president, um, but we just don't know exactly what it does to an election year inside the Republican primary electorate. And that's why it is so very hard to be a Republican uh, these days if you don't want to say exactly how you feel about Donald Trump, because um, it's it's very clear uh, it's a dynamic and sort of unknowable situation. Yeah. Um, Renee, certainly one of Donald Trump's most loyal uh, supporters in Georgia has been David Perdue. In fact, there's every reason to think that he's running for governor primarily because David uh, uh, Donald Trump said to him, please take on Brian Kemp, vindicate me in Georgia. And of course, this week, David Perdue uh, continued this theme of, of fraudulent elections in Georgia, Renee, by calling for the creation of a special election police unit to track down the wrongdoing that, to the best of our knowledge, barely exists in Georgia elections. But it does continue his hammering away at Brian Kemp, who he said in talking about this police force didn't move quickly enough to study whether the uh, who he moved too quickly in certifying the election should have done an independent analysis, an independent audit. And and so he continues that pro-Trump theme, Renee. Yeah, I, listen, I, I, I do think that it's uh, it's incredibly risky for all of the individuals that are hitching uh, their cars to the Trump mobile um, because they're 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 doing so by and adopting what has been considered just the big lie. And, you know, again, going back to what we how we started this show, uh, the, the audio recording of Trump asking uh, Raffensperger to to, you know, find him 11000 votes. That's going to play and play on. And, you know, folks who are either in the center, who, you know, aren't necessarily a part of all things Trump are going to see this as not being, you know, the, the way that they want their their politicians to govern. And so it's it's incredibly risky. And, and you, you, you know, there there has been no evidence of voter fraud and and which makes all of this, uh, you know, just political theater. Um, Andre, and a dangerous oh, I apologize, Renee. Did you want to finish that? No, no, no. I just said it, it's, it's political theater in a dangerous, uh, in a dangerous way. Thank you for that. Um, Andre, here's a quote from uh, Purdue about the way that Kemp, uh, uh, he claims, certified the election too quickly. Uh, The Purdue quote is, leave it to a 20-year career politician like Kemp to sit on his hands when we needed him most. He failed us. And Georgians lost confidence that their vote would count. Of course, the fact is their votes did count. Joe Biden won the election. Um, And, Andra, I believe I'm correct that the statutes in Georgia don't allow a governor to do anything but automatically certify uh, the results of an election. Well, Senator Purdue's trying to have it both ways. It's like he's trying to run the 2014 Senate race and the 2022 gubernatorial race um, at the same time. He's not an outsider anymore. He's got six years of federal office holding experience under his belt, but he wants to try to present himself as a fresh new outsider um, in this particular instance. And I don't think that it's working. I'm from the optics of this and the history of voter intimidation and the idea of a force coming in to investigate voter fraud, uh, which looks like there's the potential for abuse and intimidation, um, which 
uh, voting rights advocates, I think, are rightfully concerned about is an issue. There's also the notion of how this is completely derivative, right? He's just ripping off Ron, Ron DeSantis and is jumping on a particular bandwagon here. So if Jordans want independent, creative, fresh, new leadership, the idea of somebody ripping off the ideas that are crazy from the guy from the next state really isn't sort of the best way strategically to go about doing this. But what he's doing is he's tapping into the anger and the ire of Republicans who are invested in this big lie at this point and don't seem to want to let it go. Um, Patricia, the, the jolt had a lead item this morning that was kind of startling in some ways. Um, we already knew, to continue this theme about Republicans who here in the state promoting uh, that there was a fraud in the election, we already had known that um, while, while the slate of electors was being certified at the state capitol, a rump group of Republicans led by state party chairman David Schaefer was meeting behind closed doors and electing a, an alternate an illegal group of electors trying to be, I guess, placeholders should the entire election be overturned. And what the Jolt reported this morning is that Johnny Isaacson's oldest son, John, was initially approached about joining that group and said no. It's just interesting given as we think about Johnny Isaacson, uh, who would never have participated in that sort of thing, that his son too rejected it. Patricia? Uh, yeah, so the Washington Post added some reporting yesterday to what we did already know. Um, and for people who don't know, each party has a slate of electors who will cast those electoral votes for the winner of the presidential election. And if the Republican wins, that slate of Republican electors puts their name before Congress so they can be counted up in the Electoral College. Um, because Joe Biden won, there was a Democratic slate of electors that included people like Stacey Abrams and Calvin Smyrie that was submitted to Congress. On the day at the Georgia Capitol, when the Democratic electors were voted in and approved, there was this secret group of Republicans behind closed doors. Uh, Greg Bluestein saw them and said, what's going on in there? And they said, oh, it's, a, it's an education meeting, nothing to see here. Um, that was the same group of electors who would have voted for Trump in the Electoral College originally John Isaacson was supposed to be in that group had Trump won Georgia, which he did not. When this entire plan unfolded and John Isaacson heard the details, he said, no, 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 I am not going to be a part of that. Other electors did say they would be a part of that. And GOP Chairman David Schaefer is, a, is chief among them. Um, that was the list that was meant to be sent to Congress on January 6th if Republicans had succeeded in stopping the certification of the election on January 6th. It was this 16 people. And that is what John Isaacson said. I am absolutely not going to participate in that. And so that's the news um, that we learned yesterday. Yeah. Andra? So, you know, I think this is really important for Republicans. Electors get chosen in the broad sunlight in the summer before an election year. So those slates are chosen. So the idea that people are going behind closed doors and having secret meetings to put in other people who are going to do the president's beating is something that should give every partisan a cause for alarm. This coupled with the things that we've heard about in other places where uh, states, uh, where there were fake sort of election certification forms that were gonna be sent to the National Archives, I guess with the hopes that some historian could find it later and see, see, this is what was happening in Arizona, right? Like this should tell you that if there's any conspiracy going on, it's not a conspiracy to into the White House. It was a conspiracy to keep Donald Trump in. We should all be outraged about this, but in particular, Republicans should be outraged about people doing this in their name, trying to suggest that the ends justify the means. Renee. I, I, I am struck by the what, what, what we've all basically regarded as the Liz Cheney wing of the Republican Party, right? Where the individuals that just do not want to associate themselves with where the direction of Trump's Republican Party is heading. Um, Isaacson not participating in what looks like a junior high peer pressure moment um, is happening all over the country. And so it will be interesting how, how much that plays a role uh, when it comes time to go to the polls. 
All right, um, let's do this. Uh, we got so much more on our plate to talk about today. So let's get our first break of the show out of the way. We'll come back in just a minute with more on today's Political Rewind. Renee Alegria, Andre Gillespie, Patricia Murphy join me for uh, today's packed edition of Political Rewind. Patricia, uh, Brian Kemp, uh, the last couple of days was out in Las Vegas. He appeared with like, seven other Republican governors on a panel talking about uh, talking to the uh, audience at the largest gun show in the country, uh, talking about his uh, bill to uh, establish what we call constitutional carry, essentially the right to carry a gun without a uh, permit, a concealed weapon without a permit. Uh, it's a major plank uh, in his platform. Um, he just also uh, put into his budget, I think, something like $600 million to build two new prisons. Um, it's a tough-on-crime message that we haven't really seen for a long time because Nathan Deal uh, took steps to uh, look at rehabilitation and bringing uh, people back into society rather than locking them up, right? Uh, yes, I think that is um, a really good way to characterize it. Um, on the constitutional carry and uh, permitless carry, which are the same thing, um, that is a situation where Brian Kemp has long supported that, but he had never put it forward as a primary uh, plank of his platform, not his top priority. But this year, with the David Perdue challenge looming out there, uh, Governor Kemp came forward immediately in the new year and said, this is going to be one of my highest priorities. He also talked about it in his state of the state. And so he's putting a ton of political capital behind an effort to get this through the General Assembly. So I think it's a very strong bet that that's going to happen. Um, at the same time, David Perdue said, well, that was my idea first, and he's just following along. Um, and so it, uh, we will continue to see this this push and pull between Kemp and Purdue. Um, one quick thing I wanted to mention about the election police force that David Purdue has introduced. Um, there are already dozens of election investigators mm -hmm. in the state. Uh, it's not like complaints are not investigated. They are. They're investigated by the Secretary of State's office and the GBI. And so I wanted to give people some confidence that if there is an election, an, an allegation of fraud that's thoroughly investigated already, even though the proposal from Purdue makes it seem like maybe that's not the case. Um, you know, Andra, I think it's important to point out that uh, tough on crime messaging is not has not only has not been the exclusive province of Republicans. I mean, in in I go back to the days in 1990 and beyond when Governor Zell Miller uh, established two strikes and you're out. The toughest, toughest uh, 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 measures to crack down on violent criminals, especially in the country. Um, and then we have the Clinton crime bill, which um, really haunted Hillary Clinton in her bid uh, for president. But what's fascinating about that is the more recent trend, uh, you know, epitomized by people like Nathan Deal, to think differently about how to deal with, again, bringing people back into society, giving them a second chance. What's happening here, Andra? Well, contextually, there's a lot that's going on here. Um, and so when we're in a law and order moment at this uh, particular uh, point, uh, President Trump certainly revived that trope during the 2020 election, and it still is lingering into the 2022 election and possibly beyond. Um, also, we are in a moment where uh, crime rates are increasing, and so there is concern about crime. That was also the case in the early 1990s, so that was part of the reason to go about addressing those issues. Um, it's also the reason why we've seen Democrats and Republicans uh, try to address those issues, because those issues have been of concern in lots of different places. And then there is the racial undertone of this. So I want to be clear, especially in the debate about crime in the 1990s, right? African-Americans were concerned about this. This is why Bill Clinton felt completely comfortable making some of his tough-on-crime um, stances. Um, and it's why half of the Congressional Black Caucus actually voted for the 94 crime bill. Uh, but there is this element of law and order that we can chase back to the Nixon administration that really mm -hmm. taps into stereotypes about black and brown criminality, um, black criminality in particular. And so if you want to rile up a particular base in order to vote for you, right, this is an appeal that's going to work with a sizable number of white voters to positive electoral effect. 
Um, I, I appreciate your putting the crime bill, the Clinton crime bill, in context because it really, in, in fact, uh, makes the point that the times change. So while African-Americans supported it in 94, by the time Hillary Clinton was running for president against Trump, there was a great pushback as to the impact it had on African-American communities. Well, I mean, so, you know, there's a debate about it today. And I think it's important to know that there were people who were raising concerns about probably the rise of what we would now call the criminal uh, 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 criminal justice uh, complex um, today, sort of, you know, in the 1990s. But there were a lot of people who were like, but crack is real and this is really hurting black communities. And so what we see is a division, the same way that you'll see divisions in black communities about whether or not they support defunding the police. Not all blacks support that. Um, And so those debates are going on today. The reason why most African-American politicians would not support something like the crime bill today Mm -hmm. is that they've seen the rise of mass incarceration today. Um, They realize this. In the 90s, like if we go back to Rockefeller drug laws in New York in the 1970s, I don't think people the long-term effects of that. Uh, But today people are. And so that's why they tend to be more vocal. But you can't be so vocal about it that you ignore public safety and the idea that crime is rising and there needs to be something done to 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 address that. Well, Kemp has made it clear getting tough on crime is a big part of his platform. Renee, I want to turn to a law and order uh, issue that is going to send chills up the spines of many people in the Hispanic community. I was looking at your website, Mundo Hispanico, this morning, and I saw a story that I hadn't seen anywhere else. Alejandro Mayorkas, who is the Secretary of Homeland Security, is calling on the country's mayors to reestablish cooperation with ICE. He says, I ask you to reconsider your position of cooperation and to see how we can work together. We know, Renee, that there are many in the Hispanic community say that when uh, when a local law enforcement uh, is willing to cooperate with ICE uh, in terms of illegal, undocumented immigrants, uh, the, the law enforcement community lo- loses the faith of many in the Hispanic community. Yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. And, and you know, this, this goes into what has been a, a very confusing messaging uh, year from the Biden administration on all things immigration. Um, you know, they've done a lot of very good things and other things they just have been uh, lacking in how they are clearly trying to achieve change. And, you know, there, there are so many fans of, of what Biden is doing. Um, others, not so much. And we, we do have to, you know, remind ourselves that, that Obama was not exactly uh, friendly to immigration and reform. And, and Biden is just a, you know, it's, it's Obama three when it comes to immigration reform. Uh, with with the with the Biden administration, so Mallorca reaching out to to mayors like that is 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 just another uh, marker and a sign of of what I think is a muddled immigration policy. Yeah, I mean Obama became known as the deporter in chief among many uh, for the huge numbers of uh, uh, undocumented immigrants he sent. Back home. So all of this, Patricia, brings us back around to this notion that getting tough on crime uh, is seems to be, again, a major issue in the 2022 election cycle. I'm, I, I don't know how Democrats are responding to that, uh, quite honestly, at this point. Uh, what do they do with the $600 million for building two new prisons? Will Democrats suggest that there are better uses for that money? How will they – I mean, I know they oppose constitutional carry for the most part, but w- do Democrats want to get into this argument? I think it's going to be a pretty nuanced approach, and I don't know that it will be a uniform approach. And to think about how the 2022 election is going to go, you can look really clearly at the 2021 election in Atlanta um, just a few months ago when crime was the number one issue in the city. And that was throughout the city um, because um, uh, the crime has been going up in Atlanta. And I think people want to see their leaders responsive to that, but they also don't want it to see the pendulum swing so far the other way that we repeat 
the same mistakes of the past. And so I think it's going to require a really nuanced approach. And I don't hear a uniform response from Democrats right now um, because of that situation, the situation on the ground. Um, in Georgia, it is not just Atlanta uh, as a city that's struggling with crime. Uh, Savannah, Albany, a number of rural communities um, are really struggling right now. They are looking for policy changes. Uh, also, the, the Fulton County Jail is extremely overcrowded. And so people are saying, as just a humanitarian resolution, there needs to be another facility built uh, to relieve that kind of overcrowding. And so um, we're going to have to see exactly what happens in the General Assembly. We don't know for sure. And so we, um, I do look forward to, to understanding how Democrats and Republicans are going to respond to this message from the okay. governor. Um, okay. So, Patricia, let me ask you uh, to start us off on another subject uh, today. This week, we saw some shuffling around of candidates on the Democratic primary uh, uh, ballot. Um, Charlie Bailey, who was uh, running for AG, he had come fairly close to beating Chris Carr for that job uh, back four years ago. Now he's uh, said, I'm going to run for lieutenant governor instead. Brian Miller, the grandson of Zell Miller, was running for lieutenant governor on the Democratic at, at, uh, ballot. Um, what's going on here, and, and how are people responding to, to these maneuvers? Well, I think we're going back to a little bit of an era that I thought we were not going to see again, and that is a situation with um, party elders, uh, people high up in the Democratic Party, reaching out to candidates and making some changes based on what they think is going to be um, the best slate going forward. Where will they have their strongest candidates? For a long time for Democrats, it was just a free-for-all. It was just like, I don't know, I'm not doing it, you do it. You know, It was so hard to win these elections statewide. There wasn't a lot of competition. And the, the thing that um, anybody senior of the Democratic Party would do is try to recruit somebody. Um, now it's a situation where with Stacey Abrams at the top of the ticket and lots of Democrats getting into these primaries to now have contested primaries. And that means that they're going to have to message against each other and spend money against each other and make it harder to run against a Republican in the general election. And there is at this point a power center in the Democratic Party that is able to reach out to some of these lower ballot candidates and say, you know what you should think about and I'll help you do it? You should drop your bid. <laughs> you should not do this because it's going to be bad for all of us. Um, on the Republican side, now they've got the free for all. They've got the, I don't care what you say, Governor Kemp, I'm doing it. <laughs> I'll see you on, I'll see you in November. Um, uh, but it's a different situation. It's kind of a new day in Georgia for Democrats. Um, and we haven't seen it in quite some time. Yeah, Renee and and then Andra, I think the the one, the, the, the change that stands out is the Charlie Bailey decision <clears throat> to give up, excuse me, running for AG and move to lieutenant governor's race. Because Jen Jordan, of course, who is extremely popular and is raising a lot of money as a Democratic candidate for attorney general, uh, they're trying to clear the field for her. And that, that uh, Renee and, and Andra, could be a significant development for Democrats. And I'm sure it gives Chris Carr uh, a, a little bit of cons consternation as well. Renee? Yeah, I... I I think that uh, it, it, what we're seeing is 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 Democrats suddenly uh, reaching into the the win column, and you know, like Patricia said, Democrats just had no chance in the in the past. Suddenly, Democrats not only have a chance, but you know, last year they netted 30, 30 seats, um, and I, I do think that they're starting to understand that the the purple notion of this state is is real and with that comes let's be smarter about who we put on the ticket let's really think about this and that's where we're getting you know kind of the the elder democratic statement saying oh i know best it's going to be interesting how that how that plays out on the other hand i think while this doesn't change my overall national assess assessment that we're still in the six party system. Uh, and so for like my students, we think about sort of this era as having been around for about 50 years where parties are weaker, personality matters more and other kinds of things. I think that's still true, but I think this is an example of how the, uh, the, uh, the Georgia Democratic Party has been strengthening itself, how it's become more sophisticated, how it's become better organized and stronger. The fact that they can sit down and have these uh, kinds of frank conversations uh, with candidates and get people to look at the handwriting on the wall, see the probability of success 
running in certain races and then make decisions about dropping off or perhaps moving to different races, I think is something that's that's really significant. And I think it shows that uh, the organization that we saw in 2020, while it may not always be successful in the next 10 years in terms of winning statewide offices, they're there to play and they're there to be a serious contender. All right, um, let's do this. Let's go to our final break of the show and come back and try to work down this long list of items that we have to discuss today on Political Rewind. Uh, We're into the final segment of Political Rewind, and I probably should have repeated this at the start of the second segment, but um, we're uh, uh, live on video uh, today, uh, you can watch us on Facebook Live. Just go to the GPB Facebook page and you'll see us there or go to gpb.org and you'll see a button at the top of the page. that will give you uh, access to our video. Uh, that means you'll get to see Renee Alegria, Andre Gillespie and uh, Patricia Murphy. Um, Patricia, let's talk just for a couple minutes, if we can, about a f- an intriguing column you published this week. Um, basically calling into question who we uh, think of when we think of who suburban women are. And the reason that's significant, of course, in 2022 is we know that suburban women uh, are really the most sought-after, independent-leaning voters in the country and can have a huge impact on uh, where things go. What have we gotten wrong about soccer moms, suburban moms? Tell us what you were writing about. Well, I have had this experience as far back as when I was in politics and there was a room, a table full of men and they were just sort of asking themselves, what, you, what message do women want to hear? What should we say to women? You know, and there were three women at the table and they never asked us. And that was back in the days when we didn't say, you know, um, so it has long been a deficiency in politics that uh Women voters are little understood because they're infrequently talked to. They're not a lot of the voices in political journalism. They're not a lot of the voices at the top of the ticket. Um, and so um, I wanted to write this column because I we are going to hear over and over. This is X is being done to appeal to suburban women, to suburban women in Atlanta. Um, but in Atlanta, that is a very different group than I think people assume them to be. Um, people probably assume that all suburban women look like me, but white, um, uh, live kind of close in town. Um, when I look at the demographics of the Atlanta suburbs, if anybody looks at the demographics of the Atlanta suburbs, Cobb County, Gwinnett County, the places that have just fueled Democrats rise in the last several years, those are extremely diverse. And that includes the suburban moms. So they may be driving a minivan, but you are talking to a black microbiologist PhD. You are talking to a Latina woman who is also a CEO or a business owner. Um, It is not the stay-at-home mom um, with two kids in a minivan who I think even some politicians today believe they're trying to appeal to with their uh, policies on gun regulations or school choice or masks in schools. You know, it's it's an extremely different electorate, especially in Atlanta, and that has to be understood for anybody um, talking about politics in Georgia today. Andra? I just want to say, Patricia, thank you so much for writing that article. Um, And I apologize for not tweeting it out yet. Um, This is something that's really important. The reason why the North Atlanta suburbs are as Democratic as they are today, um, and this is not to discount the fact that college-educated white women nationally are the only sort of block of white people who, you know, have voted majority Democratic in elections, but it's because people of color have moved in. And they're moving in for lots of reasons. So one, gentrification is real, and so people can't afford to live in center cities anymore, so they've moved out to the suburbs. Um, Immigrants who used to come through ethnic enclaves in central cities cities start their American journeys in suburbs these days. If we think about sort of all of these particular factors, that's why we are seeing, that's why we could see a sixth district. That's why we could see a seventh district look the way that it does today. Even other things, like when people talk about like single women, like why single women are democratic, when that first kind of came out, people refer, were sort of referencing the Carrie Bradshaw vote. And it was like, no, it's because women of color don't get married. 
um, at the same rate for other really important structural reasons that we have to uh, have, have to deal with. But like it's these single women are more likely to be women of color who were actually already more likely to be Democrats in the first place. So I think that this just calls for greater understanding and greater nuance and also a cognizance of what we mean when we talk about suburbs, because I can still remember when I was in college and uh, on a missions trip with uh, some friends and, 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 and a young woman asking me, we were at a housing project, we were on top of a housing project in New York City, and her asking me, like, did I grow up in the inner city? And I looked at her like, I'm from the suburbs, hon. And it was just <laughs> like, right, this idea that even though I do live in the city now, it's like, yeah, no, I grew up in the suburbs just like you did. <laughs> <laughs> to have these types of conversations. Yeah, Renee. Uh, can I add a quick? Yeah, go oh, ahead, sorry. Patricia. I was just going to add a quick anecdote. So among the suburban women I talked to were a number of Georgia state legislators mm. and uh, Jasmine mm. Clark was one of them. She lives in Gwinnett County. She is the black microbiologist PhD who I was just talking about. And she said in Gwinnett County, um, she said there are hundreds, you know, more than a hundred languages spoken. And she's like, we have uh, people from Asia, Central America, Africa. And she's like, and that is my block. That is not the county. You know, she said, so it is a diverse tapestry where she lives. And those are Atlanta suburbs. Uh, Renee, this isn't just about um, uh, African-American women either. Obviously, we're talking about Hispanic uh, uh, women and families as well. Sure. I well, I mean, first of all, the great, great, great column, Patricia. And again, like just shining a light on uh, a misconception out there. You know, soccer moms of the 90s are not the soccer moms of today. And I think that your your column did a wonderful job in delineating that. I, I it's it's really interesting to me when you do go into Gwinnett. Marietta, Cobb. I mean, it, it does feel like you're in Queens because of the diversity of the communities out there. I mean, the Asians from every nationality, Hispanics from every nationality. I mean, it's it's pretty marvelous what energy is happening out there in quote, the, you know, outside the perimeter. Um, as, as far as the Hispanic community, you know, I mean, the, the growth is undeniable. Right. I mean, there there was a, a stat about Marietta School District with the highest share of Hispanic students approaching almost 40 percent in Marietta. Um, that's the future of where the suburbs are going. Moms, Hispanic moms are who you need to appeal to if you're going to win any election uh, out, outside of the perimeter. So I, I want to weigh in on this, too, uh, Patricia, because I want to say I, I, I was really taken, as I've already said, really, by, by this column for a couple of reasons. Number one, I always thought the term soccer moms was really a crazy term to use for one simple reason. Soccer is a worldwide, it's a global sport. There is a more popular, diverse population of people who play and follow soccer than any other sport in the world. So it was, I get what the point was, that it was, you know, white women whose kids were playing soccer, but soccer moms was always wrong. And also, Patricia, I'm glad it was retired because I always thought it was incredibly demeaning. It just conjured up the worst kinds of images of women is standing around while their kids were uh, at practice or playing a soccer match, uh, Patricia. Well, Bill, I'm a soccer mom. <laughs> I go to those soccer games. I'm on the sidelines, and that is the best part of my day. <laughs> I, I get that. I get that. But I, but nevertheless, I don't drive a minivan. <laughs> I nevertheless point out that you are far more than just someone who stands, like many of the women you know, who just stand around and watch soccer all day. Um, so uh, let's talk about uh, uh, Buckhead Cityhood for just a, a couple minutes here while we get down toward the end of the show. Uh, Patricia, we Andre Dickens continue use this, what he calls his charm offensive, or other people are calling it charm offensive, to win over legislators. I, I was interested in the fact that when he announced that he was going to have a mini precinct established in Buckhead, that Governor Kemp praised him for that. Governor Kemp made a public comment that he was really glad that was happening. And I wonder if it's fair to think that that gave us some hint about where Governor Kemp think what he thinks about this issue of an independent city of Buckhead. Well, we don't know how Governor Kemp would um, what he would do if a bill came through the General Assembly to give 
that Buckhead City permission to have a referendum. Um, but we do know that Andre Dickens is doing the work to keep legislators and lawmakers open-minded, and then even to bring some Republicans over to his side. And so by do the work, I mean, he was in Buckhead the day after he was elected. Even before he became mayor, he went to Buckhead, to the Buckhead Library, um, and has just been a pretty constant presence in the neighborhood. So I think that that has drained some of the enthusiasm out of this Buckhead City movement. Um, but at the same time, Dickens has been elsewhere all over the city. He has opened that precinct. Um, and I think he's showing uh, legislators that he's not going to make an argument based on his charm or the fact that he did come to visit them, which is just really smart politics. He's also going to do the underlying policy changes that will change the dynamic, not just in Buckhead, but across the city, especially when it comes to crime, but also when it comes to zoning. And generally, when it comes to being a present figure in the city of Atlanta, that that their residents can see, his residents can see, and then they're not going to be getting complaints from their residents. Where is my mayor? Why is crime so high? He's really addressing a lot of these issues head on. Um, and that does include physically going to the governor's office, going to see the speaker, um, establishing these relationships that he's going to need to rely on, on what is probably going to be the biggest challenge of his administration. And it just happens to be coming in the first several months. Andra? I see a marriage of symbol and substance here. So the charm offensive is the symbolic part of this. Um, you could see some of uh, the gestures being a marriage of symbol and substance. So the idea of showing up after you get elected, the idea of opening a police substation, which is symbolic, but it's also very substantive because that's going to be a permanent presence in the community. And then there are the other behind the scenes things that may be giving Governor Kemp kind of cover at this point so that it's not a, a statewide issue. And that is the idea that this initiative or this proposal for Buckhead secession has actually gone to a committee where it may die. Um, and so he knows he has cover from Jeff Duncan, and so he'll never say it publicly. But that may be explaining why he might be dropping little hints at this point, because he may not have to deal with this as an issue, which means that uh, David Perdue can't weaponize it. Renee? I think it's great to see the mayor with an energetic, engaging uh, platform here you know, we haven't seen this in a in a bit. and and just to see him pay attention to Buckhead City, Buckhead, all of the areas that he promised to, he's doing. And it, you know, I mean, obviously it's early in his in his in his uh, in mayoral ship, but I but it's 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 really a positive sign. Um, thank you for that. We are really short on uh, time. Uh, Renee Alegria, Andre Gillespie, Patricia Murphy, I'm so glad you could join us uh, for today's Political Rewind. As we leave you uh, today, I just want to say briefly that we lost Dick Williams uh, yesterday. Uh, Dick Williams, when I came to Atlanta in 1983 to start a career as a political reporter, Dick Williams was already, already one of the great veteran uh, uh, journalists political analysts in Georgia, um, and he had a long and fruitful career, and um, he will be missed by um, many, many people who followed him to find out uh, his take on conservative <laughs> politics in Georgia. So we're thinking about Dick Williams uh, on this final uh, day of political rerun this week. Uh, we're going to be back next week. We're out of time today. Uh, until we see you next, please take care, stay healthy, wear your mask, get a booster shot if you haven't had one. See you, everybody.